Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to a special guest episode of That Trippy Show. This week, we welcome New York Times reporter Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. Uh, broken too many big stories to list here, uh, and unfortunately, evidently have, have nothing to, to, to drop on this podcast. Uh, despite <laughs> our wisdom. Yes. <laughs> anyway, their new book. This will not pass Trump, Biden and the battle for America's future. It's out now. We'll have it in our show notes. Uh, Hey, guys, welcome. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. You've had plenty of scoops in this book. But uh, what caught my attention was something The Atlantic said. The book is a chronicle that should cause future readers to ponder how American leaders in the 21st century lost the ability and will to govern. I mean, do you agree with that or? with what the Atlantic was saying about this, it's, it's pretty stunning. Yeah. We felt really, um, heartened by the George Packer piece in the Atlantic. And we feel that, um, he really captures a lot of the spirit of what we're, we're uh, getting at in this book, Joe. And we are alarmed. And I think that if you look at the events of the last two years, it's hard not to be alarmed about the, the sort of health of our democracy, you know, yes, we we survived the, the attack of January 6th and there was a transfer of power, but it wasn't a peaceful one. Um, we had a, a bloody a bloody attack on the Capitol to try to overturn the results of a democratically, um, uh, you know, contested election. And that's um, that's something that is, is obviously cause for concern. Equally cause for concern is the fact that this has not passed. There's a reason why the book is called This Will Not Pass. This is a present tense challenge. We're not talking about history. We're talking about current events and, and potentially future challenges uh, in 2024. So it's a sobering moment. And what we do in this book is sort of capture what was happening at the top of both parties and how both parties were and are grappling with. Uh, with this threat to American democracy. And um, we feel really heartened by, by the response, Joe. And uh, I think George Packer sort of captures it uh, as grimly as it, as it, as it may sound. I want to preface one thing, uh, having been someone who was, you know, been interviewed for books in the past about presidential campaigns and other things is that, that um, too often uh, people don't get that, I have never met a reporter who didn't want to break the story for the paper or for their, it, it didn't want to hold it for the book. In other words, I've, I've told stuff to reporters and, and it wasn't about holding it for the book. It was me as a source saying, you can't use this. Uh, and I don't think people really understand that. Uh, it's more on why did some of the people in the book not tell anybody till, till now, but you guys really, I, I thought, um, what you got from uh, these sources just, I mean, not just me, but obviously uh, uh, a whole lot of people reviewed and read the book. It's pretty amazing um, uh, stuff. How did you get people to, 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 to talk so openly about, about this, knowing it was going to be in a book? Well, I'm so happy that you said that about, uh, uh, you know, the pressure to break things into paper versus, uh, you know, the supposed temptation uh, to hold them for the book. You know, this idea that, uh, I mean, people have mostly uh, whacked us on that over the Kevin McCarthy uh, tapes. And yeah. like the idea that if we had gotten that stuff uh, in a usable fashion as it was happening, uh, we would have sat on it for 
you know, no. 16 months or, or whatever. It's, it's, it, I mean, even yeah. if you believe vote, uh, 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 reporters are motivated exclusively by like venal and a uh, self-promotional uh, uh, temptations, like you'd be insane uh, not to break that story immediately. Right. It's this, it's like a career making story. Um, so I mean, just to, just right off the bat, like you're so right on. Like the, the 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 question here isn't do you break it in real time or do you break it in the book? It's do you break it in the book or not at all? And we thought it was worth breaking it in the book. Yeah, I had a uh, when uh, Gary Hart uh, got out of the race uh, for president. Uh, Margaret Warner was writing a book for was part of the Newsweek project, and I told her for the book, not for the Newsweek that week that Lee Hart had said to me that Gary Hart had told her the night before that he never really wanted to be president. I, that was a was big mistake because Margaret Warner traced me down like a, a banshee, <laughs> like uh, day after day. You got to let me use it for the for the magazine. Got to let me use it for the magazine. I need this for the magazine, uh, and I relented. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I should have held my ground. But uh, because I just didn't I didn't think that I that it should be out there right in that moment with what the family was going through. And I'd made the mistake of saying that. But I'm just saying, like, I've been on the other side of that where every reporter I've ever dealt with pounded me to get to get break the story for their paper, their magazine or their network. Not one that I've ever met wanted to somehow hold it. And I just think that's a, a, a something that I wanted to say. So. Um, but again, how did you guys get, uh, was it the passage of time you think that open, let them open up or, or that they just wanted to get this stuff off their chest or, or in a lot of ways, just like try to rebuild, rehabilitate themselves by telling you the story and getting it out there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's three things. Uh, one passage of time definitely helps the notion that this is not for the paper tomorrow. It's for, you know, the purposes of history, I, I think does uh, loosen a lot of tongue. I think it makes people feel a different sense of responsibility. Uh, about uh, helping us get the story right. Um, I think that coming into it with the set of relationships uh, that we had and the sort of, I, I would like to think, like professional reputation for fairness uh, and seriousness that we have, that matters a lot, right? That it's not like you just show up and say, do an interview with me embargoed until May of next year. And just anybody will say, sure. Uh, like we're mostly covering people we've covered before and who basically think they're going to get uh, you know, at least even-handed treatment um, from us. We didn't do a lot of the confessional stuff with people who were sort of like right. desperately trying to. You know, that's between them and their, uh, you know, on a higher power than uh, than the New York Times or, or Simon and Schuster. Uh, and look, the, I think the last thing is I do think a, a January sixth uh, got a lot of people uh, in a frame of mind where uh, I think they recognized that they had lived through and were continuing to live through a moment uh, that was extraordinarily dangerous and uh, who really wanted the truth. Uh, to be told. I mean, we had people talk to us about very, very personal uh, aspects of their experience you know, before on uh, and in the weeks and months after that day, um, you know, who would never share that kind of information um, for, for sort of ordinary news consumption. I think that sort of helped set the broader uh, attitude that people had towards our project. So let's talk about where, where we are now in context of the book. I mean, with McConnell uh, and McCarthy, I think both of them, uh, you, you know, you reported that McConnell passed a message on to Biden saying he'd recognize him as president, but needed time. And it took him like something like six weeks. Um, 
did McCall just misjudge the moment in terms of the crazy out there or, or I think McConnell's eyes were on the prize. And for McConnell, that means control of the Senate, Joe. I think in the weeks after the election, mm-hmm. he was consumed with retaining power as Senate majority leader. And that meant winning those two Georgia runoffs on January 5th. And I think that was priority one and everything else was subsumed to that. And so, yes, when you're talking about the transfer of power, recognizing Joe Biden's uh, victory uh, as as president-elect, I just think he, he wasn't willing, McConnell was not willing to acknowledge that until there was a point of no return and that he um, he was reluctant to do it because he didn't want to alienate Trump. He needed Trump to, to rally voters in Georgia. And, and so he waited until the George is over. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Well, he he waits until the official um, the official electoral college right. uh, meets in December and then goes to the Senate floor and acknowledges that uh, Biden has won and congratulates Biden and takes a call from Trump immediately after. And Trump's just livid. And to this day, Joe, it's the last time McConnell and Trump spoke, December of 2020. It's amazing. And what about McCarthy? I mean, I, you obviously, uh, the tapes uh, you guys broke. Uh, but what's the current state of that? I mean, that civil war within the, the House, it, 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 what's the state of that rift today? I mean, with McCarthy, where, where do you, where's he stand in the caucus from your your guys point of view from giving your reporting and what you've seen in the aftermath of it uh, civil war. But I think it is, uh, uh, you know, Joe kind of like a, a Yugoslavia in the late eighties kind of situation, right? We're like, we could all see how this could go really badly, really fast uh, for him. Like it's a super uh, uh, fractious and factionalized uh, Republican conference. There's nobody, very few people who have, like a genuine, deep affection and appreciation for Kevin McCarthy. He's sort of a, you know, a facilitator, uh, like a, an all things to all people uh, kind of guy, uh, which, by the way, is part of why um, uh, I think the tapes did not have this sort of like fatal impact that that, that some observers might have expected them to. Uh, because, a lot, you know, I, I don't know that it told Republican members of Congress a whole lot that they didn't already know uh, about McCarthy. He says different things to different audiences, depending on what they need to hear. Uh, he grovels to Trump when he needs to. He tries to pretend or or at least give off the impression that he's uh, you know, a tougher guy than that when he's not uh, in front of Trump. Uh, and he's sort of barely cobbling together uh, you know, the, the support he needs for leadership. Um, I think it's likelier than not that he still ends up uh, as Speaker of the House. But I think that he, because of the way that he's getting there, which is basically appeasing every constituency within his coalition to the greatest extent possible, and obviously more than anything else, uh, appeasing Donald Trump, uh, it means that even if they get a pretty robust uh, majority, he's serving at the pleasure of a whole lot of different uh, sort of factional chieftains, and that's a very tough place to be. So one thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, obviously he denied saying a lot of what he denied, and then you guys went on TV with the tapes which was great. What did you, and when you were reporting for this book, were there other kind of moments where it was kind of like you were, you thought when people would say one thing and then after it came out, the reaction would be different. Like, how did you balance that kind of 
couldn't believe that people actually said it obviously got it confirmed and then you knew they'd kind of walk away from it publicly it was on our mind a great deal joe which is this you know for seven years now since donald trump came on the political scene there's been this constant conversation in Washington and really in all political circles. If you only knew what the Republicans actually said about Donald Trump in private, they hate the guy. And it was sort of this, this constant refrain. What we wanted to do in this book was really illuminate those private conversations. We wanted to sort of tell readers, tell the American voter, this is what your leaders actually say and think in private when they the camera's not on and they don't uh, know or I don't think that there's audio running. And I, th- I think it really tells a bigger story. It's yes. Is it uh, nice to have the scoop? Of course it is. But I think it tells a bigger story about th- this, this moment of just dishonesty, especially in the Republican Party when it comes to their leader. It's just extraordinary. I can't recall, Joe, a sort of period in American history in which the leadership of a political party was so at odds with their rank and file. The, the elected officials, the donors, the strategists that make up the Republican Party have little to no regard for Donald Trump. They do not want him to be their nominee again. They're largely embarrassed by him. Many of them didn't even vote for him in the privacy of the ballot booth in either election. But they conduct themselves in public in a way which doesn't really capture that. Why? Because most of their voters like Donald Trump. And it's just this enormous chasm. And I think we sort of try to capture uh, that gap and sort of what they actually are saying and doing behind the scenes about Trump in a way that I don't think until now has fully been revealed, Joe. Yeah, it's actually pretty bleak depiction, though. I mean, it's uh, I thought the book, you know, really does a great job, but leaves you with the sense that, you know, there's a where our democracy stands right now is pretty bleak, even. Um, you know, some of the more decent people you profile, you, you kind of imply that we're not going to get very far to stop this. Yeah, I mean, quoting Malcolm uh, Turnbull, uh, yeah, you know, th- that great line that you hear all the time, this is not us, this is not America. You know what? It is actually. I think it's a real observation from, you know, from someone like him. Uh, and But that's also how the, the book, I, I kind of think leaves you. I mean, what it, what it, how do you like as reporters, you know, kind of see how bleak the situation for democracy and still maintain that reporter edge to 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 not take sides? I mean, it, it, in a weird way. I mean, because uh, I think a lot of people think, hey, you've got to take sides. Right. I think in a lot of ways this book does that. But I just want to get your take. Turnbull, the former uh, Australian uh, prime minister, talked to another, uh, a couple other uh, current for, uh, foreign uh, dignitaries or former foreign uh, heads of state, heads of government. Um, you know, because the the view from the outside in, uh, it can be really clarifying, uh, as you know. Uh, and the view from the outside in for the the entire duration of this book, even in the period, Joe, the early months of the Biden administration, when you know we had a new president who was going around the world saying uh, America's back. And the view from elsewhere was like, are you guys really? Right. Like, are things really okay over there? And we have a scene in the book where uh, Angela Merkel is meeting with Ka- uh, Kamala Harris in Washington and basically asks her that, like, are you, you know, are you, are you guys going to be okay? Is the Trump thing uh, over? 
Um, in terms of choosing sides, uh, look, like I think that we address the most destabilizing and pernicious forces in our democratic system in pretty unsparing uh, language in the book. And I don't think, you know, for anybody who uh, hears that there's like criticism of both parties in this book and then takes away the idea that like, well, this must be one of those uh, false equivalency things. Like, I, I don't right. think uh, we do that at all. I think we describe Trump as, you know, authoritarian demagogue attacking the roots of the uh, democratic system. And I think we describe the Democratic Party as a sort of incoherent uh, coalition uh, that is struggling badly to govern. All of those things are true. All of them are bad for democracy. Uh, in no way are they uh, sort of morally uh, equivalent. You know, I look at the reporting, you know, is there a path forward for Democrats from your, I mean, like you, you quoted Steve Braschetti, I think it's great. The problem with the left essentially is that they don't understand that they've lost. You see sort of voices on both, you know, in both parties and the dysfunction in Washington writ large that, you know, has gotten us here. And then with with Trump and the authoritarian movement, you know, we are, in my view, at least uh, 2022 and 2024 could be pretty determinative if the Democratic Party doesn't, you know, doesn't rise to the to to the to this and and, and somehow uh, get a message out there. What you, from your perspective, Democrats, um, what's where do we go? Where do Democrats go uh, and, and get the and have the, the, developed the ability to to stop this stuff. Well, you see the tension playing out in the midterms, Joe, in which, you know, uh, the elites, uh, not just in the Democratic Party, but, you know, I think uh, broadly across the political spectrum, except for, of course, kind of the MAGA crowd, there's deep concern about the health of American democracy and the 2024 election. And uh, you know, sort of basic questions that we just haven't really even considered in, in recent American history as to whether or not our system can still work of self of self government. Um, but you see a play on the midterms where there's a recognition among Democratic operatives running these campaigns that those concerns about American democracy are just not front and center for most Americans. So it's not like. It's playing out in the campaigns where, you know, Democratic candidates are, are warning about the rule of law and our, our Constitution. They're talking about gas prices, the price of groceries um, and, you know, Roe versus Wade. Um, I get it. I think we all get it. It's what their polling data reflects. And that's what they see as the sort of top of mind issues for voters. But you're, you're right to get at um there, there does seem to be the sort of building fire, the sort of gathering fire uh, on the House of American democracy, but it's not sort of front and center in the actual campaign itself because the average American voter is thinking about his or her immediate uh, concerns. And so I'm just not sure, you know, how, how that, that gets reconciled eventually. But uh, I think it, it obviously is going to take a sort of competent, functional Democratic Party um, in 22 and, and, and 24. And, um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of people uh, in your party, Joe, who would question whether or not uh, you're going to have what it takes to to sort of both hold control of Congress this year and retain the White House in 2024, given the cacophony of voices in your party and given the kind of increasingly fractious nature uh, of your coalition. Well, there's that's part of the problem, I think, has been that, that, that uh, again, if you're a, an American who's been out there and we've 
been this country for over 250 years and there's been two parties functioning, et cetera. Um, there's a normalcy of bias that, that, that kind of blinds people to, to the, to how close the threat really is, you know? And so it's hard. It, again, inflation is real. Gas price is real right there. And, and they can't imagine, uh, that democracy is actually threatened. I and mean, it's not a, it, 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 uh, Stuart Stevens, uh, says all the time that we lack the imagination of how far, you know, Trump would go and, and where the authoritarian mo- movement might, might take the country. But, you know, you wake up after the fact and it's too late to do much about it. And I do think that that's part of the democratic party's problem as well is that there are, Tons of people in the caucus who, even after January 6th, do not, do not recognize uh, how close the threat really is or came to, because if they did, they wouldn't be having some of these arguments. We'd, uh, uh, we'd be finding much more agreement. And, 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 and uh, I think the message out of the White House would be stronger and more unified. But, I, you know, that's my party. We, we're, we, we have a diverse fights and they're going to probably continue. Uh, uh, but what do you think in terms of the, you know, the prospects for getting to the prospects for 2022? Uh, I know everybody, you know, conventional wisdom, Democrats going to suffer massive losses, et cetera, uh, because of approval ratings, inflation. Uh, but, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, the Herschel walkers and, uh, you know, whether it's Dr. Oz or not uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, I see some similarities to to the better parts of 2010 for Democrats, where that was the craziness of the Republican Party at the time in terms of who they nominated, um, you know, in Delaware, I think Missouri and Nevada in particular, uh, where they they, you know, where seats they should have won. Uh, and taking the Senate, uh, they didn't. And I, I think that's in both houses a possibility. And I just wanted to get your take on, on where you see the, the you know, heading into 2022, where, where you guys see that the the likely makeup of the House uh, and, and Senate post, you know, post that election. How, how do you think it'll? Where do you think things stand? Well, Joe, I'll just start by saying that uh, uh, only uh, only an architect of the Jerry Brown campaign could refer to like the better parts of 2010, because uh, you know, for, for uh, most other Democrats, that's like the classic. Uh, like other other than that, Mrs. Lincoln uh, uh, sort of yeah. sort of preface. Um, but look, no, I think it's totally possible that Republicans are going to leave uh, real gains on the table because they nominate specific people uh, who are terribly, terribly flawed. Uh, and because the party as a whole uh, is seen as too extreme by the voters they would need in order to make the kind of massive gains uh, that right now, just based on the atmospherics, sure seem possible. I think it'd be extraordinarily difficult for Democrats to keep the House. The margin is just too small. The president's party always, almost always loses uh, seats in the in the first midterm uh, election, and they don't have a lot of seats to lose. But Look, I think the Senate is potentially potentially uh, a different story. You know, the midterms are all about, as you know, just like managing degrees of pain. Uh, and I think the exact degree of pain for Democrats is still a very much an open question. Um, the most extreme degree of pain would be very, very, very painful uh, indeed. But we would be looking at a different uh, setup right now 
uh, if, you know, in uh, Arizona, they had managed to get Republicans had managed to get uh, Doug Ducey to run for the Senate, Chris uh, Sununu in uh, New Hampshire, uh, and if in Georgia, they had nominated, frankly, like a, a cardboard cutout uh, of a Republican rather than uh, somebody with Herschel Walker's particular baggage, like right there uh, is three seats that I think just based on the environment, based on the fundamentals and based on the candidates uh, I mentioned could be like basically leaning solidly or leaning or, or solidly Republican at this point that are right now uh, extremely contested and where Democrats clearly uh, have a path to make it through. So we'll see if that holds. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, again, when you're talking about degrees of pain, the environment getting even slightly better or even slightly worse versus where it is today could matter a lot. And in that, though, when you see like, uh, OK, so let McCarthy, they win the majority in the House and, and McCarthy is is speaker. Uh, do, you, do you see what do you think the prospects of Trump going again are? Um, and also in that, given January 6th, given your reporting, given what, uh, you know, all, all that that happened, um, if Trump does go and they have the majority in the House, what, what, do you, what do you see the 2020, you know, the certification probably I mean, those is was the, can it go that far where they they certified? No, this is the shadow over American democracy right now, Joe. The, those two questions that, that you raised is the sort of um, the the ever lengthening shadow over American democracy is, you know, is Trump going to run again? And if so, and he loses, will there be an effort to overturn the results and claim fraud of some kind to install him into power? I think on the first I think it's less clear cut than people assume. I think the, the conventional wisdom is that he will. And I think there's a reason for that conventional wisdom. It's probably more likely that he will. But Donald Trump is Donald Trump. He's an unpredictable character. And uh, look, he obviously craves the attention. He, he, he loved the publicity that comes with being president, which is uh, uh, not, not insignificant. And so I think he is going to be tempted and he may want to redeem himself from 2020. But at the same time, Joe, we also know about Donald Trump that he does not like to be perceived as a loser. And so is there a way that he could, you know, keep getting the attention, but somehow not run again uh, and avoid being sort of tagged as a two-time loser if he does lose the general election? I mean, I think that is a considerable risk for him. Uh, And I think the other issue that we're not really thinking about is his legal exposure. I mean, by 2024, is he going to be indicted? Is he going to be convicted in, in some jurisdiction? I think that remains to be seen. I think that's going to be a factor uh, as well. As for the, the larger question about will the congressional Republicans essentially overturn the election to install him into power, I don't have a clear answer on that. But my goodness, especially in the House right now, he's got them wrapped around his finger for the most part. So the pressure would be enormous from him. And I'm not sure that there would be resistance to that effort among the House GOP leaders. At least today, you know, they're they're fairly subservient to him. Look, look no further than Kevin McCarthy and all that Kevin McCarthy does to keep Trump happy. You know, uh, Jonathan, Alice, we're just about out of time, but did want to ask you, know, you obviously the, the depth of your reporting on this book is is huge. And you talk to a lot of people. I'm just wondering, were there any conversations you had that 
you know, haven't really grabbed the headlines yet, but are, are kind of an interesting story or a little, little fact or tidbit that it's in the book. Again, I'm not asking you to break anything here, but anything that, that might have gotten glossed over that you, you think our listeners would find interesting? To end this on, uh, uh, I think, an appropriately grim uh, note, uh, look, I think that one of the, the undercurrents of the entire uh, narrative that we have in this book uh, is this sense of you know, just imminent, uh, at least imminent okay. violence or the threat of imminent violence uh, throughout our political system. And we had these conversations with members of Congress in both parties, with governors uh, uh, of, of significant states, uh, talking about going about their jobs as you know, uh, uh, servants of democracy, as they would see it, servants of the people, and sort of constantly being concerned, uh, if not about their own physical safety, then at least the physical safety of their families and the security of the of of their homes. Um, you know, we had uh, uh, a member of Congress from uh, Illinois, Lauren Underwood, who uh, won election in 2018. She's one of the youngest uh, members uh, of the House. Uh, she was Capital complex on January 6th. You know, she told us in the, uh, it was either the late spring or the early summer of 2021 uh, that, you know, the atmosphere in Congress was still so bad that it's only a matter of time before somebody gets shot, which is an extraordinary thing uh, to hear somebody uh, say uh, as a public official. We had people uh, tell us that they've uh, needed to have uh, police cruisers uh, parked at the end of their driveways because of the death threats they were getting. we had uh, the mayor of Chicago tell us that uh, every time Trump uh, would tweet something negative about her, the death threats against her would soar uh, and people would uh, actually sometimes, you know, I, I think she said there was never actually somebody who showed up armed, but there were people who showed up uh, at her house. Uh, the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, after there was that uh, a kidnapping plot revealed against her, then Trump went back to her state uh, and attacked her in the same kind of personal a paranoid language that he'd used before. Uh, she told us that she really felt in that moment that the president, the sitting president of the United States, was trying to get her killed. This is stuff that just one by one uh, has not sort of leaped uh, onto the headlines from this book, and I understand why. Uh, but I do think that one of the things that we're really trying to get uh, out in our narrative is just how pervasive this feeling of menace is for the participants in our political system. And I think it's an extraordinary story that's about the, the sort of dark moment uh, that the country's in right now, and also the incredible grit uh, of some of these folks in public office who decide, you know what, I'm going to keep on uh, getting up and, and casting my votes or, uh, you know, d- doing the people's business in, um, you know, Lansing or, uh, or, or Concord uh, uh, or, or Santa Fe anyway. I'll just add one fast thing to that and just put a put a finer, perhaps even grimmer point on this is. There are these kids, and that they are basically kids, they're fresh out of college, who sit in the front offices of members of Congress. And these kids are receiving the nastiest, most vile phone calls day in, day out, including uh, death threats, uh, if they work for certain members of Congress, because people are now so radicalized. Uh, in this moment, that they feel emboldened to call and threaten the lives of lawmakers. Liz Cheney, for example, you know, her chief of staff 
is in constant contact with the security apparatus in the U.S. Capitol because they get so many threats. And they can even trace them, Joe, to uh, certain shows you know, in Fox primetime that you can imagine what they are. And that's when the calls and the voicemails really spike. But I just think it's a small thing, but it tells you so much about this period that you've got these kids who are, you know, um, fresh faced, ambitious, idealistic. They come to Washington. They're answering phones uh, for members of Congress and they're dealing with death threats day in, day out from total strangers. I mean, talk about a sort of sign of the times. It is it is just grim. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about uh, the need for uh, people cross party lines and uh, and come together in a pro democracy. You know, in, 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 to to fight the it, mostly it's not a right left thing or Democrats versus Republicans anymore. It's 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 fighting this hate and 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 forming a pro broad based pro democracy coalition to. Um, that comes together about defending democracy first, and then right. uh, and then we can de- debate marginal tax rates at some later date. Right. Uh, listen, uh, <laughs> I, I I really want to thank Alex Burns and, and Jonathan Martin. Uh, their book "This Will Not Pass: Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future" is out now, and that battle is now. That's what the, I think the, the the big message of the of the book that every American. Uh, should read and, and, and think about uh, defending uh, that 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 future of our democracy. You can follow Jonathan on Twitter at jmartnyt and Alex at alexburnsnyt. We'll include links to both of those in the show notes. We'll be back next week. And of course, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question, the review on iTunes. Alex and Jonathan, thanks so much and get the book, folks. Thanks, Joe. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.